In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Hey everybody, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the OGGN HSE podcast sponsored by Andrus and & Hauser. A global leader in process automation and measurement instrumentation, Endress and Hauser, the people for process automation. Today's guest is Nate Bremen. Nate, thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Russell. Well, you're very welcome. Nate, we'll get to exactly why I'm excited about having you on the program today, but you are a corporate safety manager at a very large company. That's how you described it to me. Let's name that company and what do you do for them? Yes, sir. Well, I work for Berkshire Hathaway Energy, and I've been with them for about eight years. And my job title is Safety Performance Manager. And I do so many different things, and I get involved in so many different things. And I get to work for a broad spectrum of different companies that are underneath that umbrella company. And it has been quite a ride. And just about, you could just about name it, and I've done it. So I've, I've been involved in a lot of corporate analysis, number crunching, data analysis, benchmarking, you know, comparing. It's very difficult. It's easy to compare one business to an industry number like the Edison Electric Institute puts together data as far as like safety, you know, OSHA recordable incident rates for that industry. Or you could look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics for a benchmark to see how you're doing versus the industry. But when you have a large company that's full of several smaller businesses of all different kinds, it's very difficult to try to find a benchmark. Like, well, how do we know if we're doing well or not? And so I got to create a process to develop a benchmarking or benchmark for Berkshire Hathaway Energy. And actually, one of my claims to fame is that Warren Buffett was interested in how I did it because he had been asking Berkshire Hathaway Energy for a while to do it. And everyone said it can't be done because there's no way to compare such a unique company to an, any, any sort of industry benchmark. And the chief admin officer at the time came to me and said, do you think you could take a stab at doing something like this? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll try. And I came up with something and I went in front of Warren Buffett and he was curious about it. And at, at the end of the day, he really liked the way I did it. So that was kind of a little feather in my cap. Uh, that had to be exciting getting in front of the big man like that, huh? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So Berkshire and Hathaway Energy, we're talking, I mean, I don't know why I'm surprised, you know, Berkshire and Hathaway's into everything, you know, furniture uh, yeah. stores. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, they're so but, big. But energy, are we talking upstream, midstream, downstream? What are we talking about? Well, so Berkshire Hathaway Energy owns, I don't know, 15, 16 different businesses. And these businesses range from underground and surface coal mines. They have uh, power generation, uh, coal generation, natural gas generation, combined cycle generation. They have transmission, distribution lines, all kinds of renewables. And then they also own Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, which is it's, it's a real estate company in all 50 states. I mean, that's the biggest one, actually. It's, there's a ton. If you count the contractors, it's a huge, huge organization. So they get into all that stuff, which means I get into all that stuff. Oh, wow. Okay, so everybody who regularly listens to this podcast knows that I'm in Houston, Texas. Where are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm just north of you. I'm in Des Moines, Iowa. Right in <laughs> just a little bit north. Yep, <laughs> right in the heart. So are you originally from Iowa? I see you received your MS from Iowa State University in 2012. 
Yep. I was born in Ames, Iowa, which is where Iowa State University is. And I have all kinds of family that went to Iowa State University. My grandfather got his master's from Iowa State. My father got his master's from Iowa State. My aunt got her bachelor's from Iowa State. And it was close. And I just decided I might as well go to Iowa State as well. So your master's is in what field? Yeah. So my master's is in the degree program was called industrial technology, but it had two options in it. One of them was manufacturing. So learning how to use like AutoCAD, Autodesk Inventor, that, that sort of thing. And the other option was occupational safety. And so I chose the occupational safety route. And before that, you were in the Marine Corps. Is that correct? Yes, sir. I joined the Marine Corps shortly after 9-11. Well, thank you for your service. I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's interesting. Back in the day, you couldn't choose a military occupational specialty or MOS as they, as they call it in the Corps. And so I had decided I wanted to go in and I was trying to decide what to do. And I decided to choose the 7,000 series, which is airfield services, basically. And then I was assigned a specific MOS of 7051, which is crash fire rescue. So essentially it's airport firefighting. But because of that, I got to go to after boot camp and after Marine combat training, I went down to San Angelo, Texas and attended Lewis F. Garland Fire Academy. And I was certified in firefighter two and airport firefighting, got my certifications from there and then ended up getting injured, got out of the Marine Corps early. I wasn't able to finish out my entire four years, but it was an honorable discharge. So I was honorably discharged and decided I wanted to go back to school and actually started out with an associate's degree in fire science. So I have my certifications in firefighting. I got my, my associates in fire science. And then from there, that's when I decided to switch over to safety because I knew I wanted to continue going to, to school. I might as well use my GI bill, continue going to school. And Iowa State University had the occupational safety option. And I felt like it would be a good segue. There's lots of jobs and the jobs pay pretty well. So I did my, did my research. Definitely didn't want to end up with a degree that, you know, didn't help me find a job. So got my bachelor's degree. And then because I was injured, I have a special benefit that the VA was offering called vocational rehabilitation. I was not able to continue my job that I was trained to do in the Marine Corps, which was being a firefighter. And so they were willing to pay for my master's degree in occupational safety. Well, are you okay now? No, nope, actually not. I mean, I'm okay. But the injury that I have, it's in my back and it, it's never oh, wow, gotten better. That, that, so yeah, those don't, those don't get better a lot of times. Right. So since I was 19, I feel like I've had the back of an 80 year old person. So, well, hopefully with some of the new technology coming out, hopefully there'll be a breakthrough that can rejuvenate your back. The reason I wanted to have you on the show, you're pretty active on LinkedIn. I think you go by Redbeard. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. As always, we'll put your LinkedIn URL on in the show notes, but you recently released a short read safety book called Five Principles for Parenting and Occupational Safety Management, which hit the number one spot on Amazon in two categories for a short while. And I wanted to visit with you about this. Yeah, awesome. Of course, the title itself is intriguing to me, Five Principles for Parenting and Occupational Safety Management. Yeah. So the reason, and I know a lot of people recoil when they think, oh, well, you know, being a safety manager is not like parenting. You shouldn't treat people like your children. And I, I agree with that. So I'm not drawing a correlation necessarily between parenting and occupational safety management, except for the fact that in both cases, you're dealing with people. And 
people are consequence driven and the importance of building up a relationship in both cases applies the same and having a good, good form of communication in both cases applies the same. So there are parallels for sure. Wow, that's interesting. Do you have children? Yes, I do. I have a seven-year-old boy. Oh, wow. That's a great age. Okay, so five principles. Let's talk about those five principles because that's what I wanted to discuss with you. What's principle number one? All right. So principle number one is always apply the two lenses. And this applies to all kinds of things, not just parenting or occupational safety, but it has been a great tool for me in both realms. And essentially what it is, is first you apply the lens of principle. And then you apply the lens of practicality. There's a lot of safety people who will just apply the lens of principle and not consider whether or not it's practical. And conversely, there's a lot of safety people and and managers or people in general that apply the lens of practicality without applying the lens of principle. And I think both are bad. You, You definitely have to have both. You always start with the lens of principle to decide what is ethically right. And then you apply the lens of practicality to determine what what's more pragmatic. I think that's a very good point. You know, when you have children, you always say, when I have children, I'm never going to do this or I'm never going to do that. <laughs> and then most of the time you wind up doing exactly what you said you weren't going to do, you know. But a lot of times you look at some of the things your parents did and you, you say, I'm never going to do that. And as I said, a lot of times you find yourself doing it. But one of the things that really used to irritate me about my parents, a lot of times I would ask them, you know, I would ask the why question, which a lot of parents don't like the why question, you know, and their answer was because I said so. And I swore to myself when I raised my two children that I was never going to say that. And I can actually say that that's the one commitment I can only think of one time in my entire parenting career, two children, I can only think of one time I became so frustrated and exasperated that that's, that's what I said because I said so. <laughs> but, well, hey, that's not bad. Good for you. That's but, an amazing but accomplishment. But I think, I think that gets to what you're, you know, you just can't, you, you can't go around and, and not be able to show people the principles and look at the practicality of it. It can't just be this, you know, I'm the boss, I'm the safety manager, you're going to do this because I said so. Right, exactly. If you just live in a world of principle, you know, those people might as well get on their unicorns and fly back to their gumdrop castles. There you go. Because it's just, they're not attached to reality. It has to be something practical. Like when you're writing a procedure, if the procedure is not written with the end user in mind, with the frontline employee, in fact, if it's not, if it doesn't incorporate their input and feedback, you know, the people who are experts at doing their job, you you should incorporate those people because if it's not practical, then they're not going to do it. And one other thing I wanted to mention real quick was uh, about parenting was, you know, in the, in the movie star Wars, when Luke Skywalker is in the planet Dagobah in the swamp with Yoda, right? There's this one scene where Yoda's laying there in bed and he's finished kind of training Luke and Luke is asking him questions and he keeps asking one question after the next. And like Yoda just stops answering questions and rolls over and dies. And I thought when I was a kid, I was, was so annoyed. I'm like, just answer his question. Why can't you just tell him that he has a sister or something like that? And, and it wasn't until I was a parent that I understood that when you get asked all these questions that now it totally made sense to me. Sometimes it's easier just to kind of roll over and disappear or die than answer a question over and over again. So, you know, once you're in the role of being a parent and your patience is tested, you know, you could say whatever you want to say, but when you're in the moment, it's, it's definitely a lot bigger of a challenge for sure. 
It definitely is. Okay, principle number two. All right, principle two is parent peacefully and manage peacefully. You know, this is for managing peacefully. What I mean by that is don't use threats and don't use force because those are extrinsic motivators and extrinsic motivation is much less compelling than intrinsic motivation. So if you can work with people, like do safety with your employees rather than to your employees, then you will have buy-in and then the employee will understand it. Like if you just say, because I said so, then they're not going to understand why. And it's important that they understand why so that they, you know, in a way that they, they can kind of police themselves so that, you know, you don't have to try to make sure they're always doing the same thing. I absolutely agree with that. That's why the theme of this show is making sure everyone comes home safely. And we want people to see that this concept of safety is not about a bunch of rules and about a bunch of, you know, you're, you're going to do this because this is what we put in a manual or whatever, but, and we're going to force you to do this. We want you to do it because these are the things you want to do so that you can come home safely. Exactly. Exactly. And, and there's always a disconnect between what happens or what's put in the manual and the procedures and what's actually done in the field. And it's so important to align those two things. You want to make sure that you're, and that's because oftentimes the policies are not practical and people are finding quote unquote shortcuts to go around the procedure because maybe it slows them down or maybe there's time pressures put on them. And so the safety professional needs to be aware of this and ensure that the work that's actually done in the field is done safely. Not that it's just imagined that it's done safely. Well, and as you said, getting the, when you write your policies and procedures, getting the input from the people out in the field, that helps ensure buy-in. I know of some companies that they set goals for, you know, let's say, well, maybe it's a number of lost incident days or, or maybe it's even sales and marketing goals and that sort of thing. And some of the more successful companies, rather than coming up with a goal and then, you know, communicating that all the way down the bottom, they actually ask people at the bottom, write your goals. And then they come up with the goals based on the input that they get. And now they have buy-in into the goals. Yeah, that's really smart. And not only that, but there was a quote, I can't remember who said it, but it's measure that becomes a goal, ceases to be a good measure. And what happens is I think with a lot of goals, the standard goal is the number of injuries. And that's very difficult to control directly because that's an outcome and you can never control your outcomes directly. Like to put it in perspective, like with your child, for example, if if you want them to pass their tests, you will tell them, okay, I want you to come up with a plan to study and learn the material. Because that in turn allows them to answer questions properly. And that in turn allows them to get points and earning those points on the test allows them to pass the tests. Now take that as opposed to telling them just don't fail the test. Yeah, which one's more more effective? Exactly. Exactly. It's like goals should be based on the inputs, not the outputs. It should be based on what you want them to do. So identification of valued behaviors, find out what it is that you want them to do that you know will in turn lead to better outcomes. And it doesn't have to be counted. Like every time I talk about this, someone says, well, if we have like one of my favorite ones is near miss hazard recognitions and good catches. 
if you start a reporting program for near misses, hazard recognitions, and good catches, I call them nimmergicks because it's just, you know, just abbreviated, then you will have more learning opportunities than if you just have injuries reported. Because if you have a near miss, the employee might not report it to you, but you want to know about that because that will help you learn about hazards in your workplace. And if you don't eliminate those hazards, (laughs) then they're just going to jump up and bite the next person at some point down the line. You want to be able to mitigate those hazards. And so what always happens is, well, how do we know? What if that number goes up? Is that bad or good? Or what if it goes down? Is that bad or good? It's like, I call it the church of counting things. Like some people think you have to count everything. And it's no, you don't have to count those. Don't worry if it goes up or down or whatever, just encourage it because it's the right thing to do. And then you can watch your outcomes go up or down. And then you know whether or not your program is being effective based on those outcomes. I think that's exactly right. Okay. Point number three. All right. Number three is find common goals. And it's just a life principle, to be honest with you, that applies to both places. Any relationship that you have and safety is, it's very important in safety to build relationships. I think we'd both agree on that. If you don't have common goals, that relationship will deteriorate and it will not work. Imagine being married to somebody that has completely opposite goals or different goals. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. If you want to have a kid, but your wife doesn't or vice versa, you know, that's going to cause problems. And those are the relationships that break down. So common goals is extremely important. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the marriage relationship. As soon as you said that, I couldn't help but think about a marriage book that was written by a psychologist. And that's one of his principles. He said something that is inviolable, you have to come to mutual agreement on issues. And he goes into a whole chapter on it and about how you accomplish that. And and he says, you know, sometimes you, you don't come to a mutual agreement. And when that happens, you got to set it aside and you got to come back and, and hit it again at another time. But you just, you can't have, you just can't have that tug of war in any kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the thing is different goals. There's unspoken goals. There's unintentional goals that are created on employees. For example, time pressures, getting something done on time. And maybe that's just that because they want to go home, you know, or maybe it's because the foreman is putting pressure on them. And the upper management may have a different goal together. Their goal may be, we just want to have, we want to look good because that's a big thing. And they tend to focus on the outcomes because they say, I want this number of recordables to go down. And then they stop short. They say, that's all I care about. But there is a negative ripple effect that happens there because then the people reporting to them, they will do anything to get that number down because if their goals are tied to that number going down, they're going to find a way to do it, whether or not that number represents reality or not. Whether it's actually safe or not. Exactly. Exactly. Number four. All right. Number four is think like a marketer. So inside of a company, there's many different angles you can take on this, but anytime, one of the things I've learned in a big organization, especially in a corporate role, is you can't just say something one time and expect everybody to have absorbed it and understand it. There are times when I send out an email that I think is very simple and people come back with all these different questions or people completely miss it altogether or they miss a piece of it. Studies show that when you have an audience, like let's say you're doing a presentation, only about 30% of that audience is listening and actually paying attention at any given time. So in order to get a message across, you have to repeat yourself. So the things that I found with marketing is One, you have to be frequent. 
and you have to repeat yourself. The other thing is, is it has to saturate your audience. So it has to saturate the people you're trying to reach. So inside of an organization, if you want to effectively get messages across your employees, you're going to have to send multiple messages and you're going to have to make sure it hits everybody. Another aspect of it is, is that it has to be actionable. There has to be a call to action. What is it that you want them to do? Don't just harp on them because you're not on your goal, because you're over your goal and the number of injuries or whatever. There's nothing they can do about that. But what can they do? So focus on what they can do, what's actionable, what's, I call them valued behaviors, and give them something to strive for. So we should be measuring things in the positive or encouraging in the positive, because then they can actually contribute to it in a positive way. And then the last piece of it is use a visual. So for example, on LinkedIn, you mentioned that I go by Redbeard. Well, part of the reason I do that is because there's a study done. Actually, it was in a college. They took a set of women and they had all the students, all the student body or a representative sample of the student body rate how attractive those women were. And out of all of those women- You're getting into dangerous territory here, Nate. uh, (laughs) I will tread carefully. So they picked the ones that were rated as a seven on average, and then they took those for the study. And what they did was, is through the course of one semester, they would have some of the women of that group go into the classroom every single day. And they'd all do the same thing. They'd all walk down to the front of the classroom and they'd sit down. They wouldn't necessarily, you know, talk to anybody. They would just be there. Some of them would go in every other class and some of them only went in half of the classes and some of them never went in at all. And what they found was, is out of all the women, the ones that were there the most, or at the end of the class, I should say, they did another rating as far as how attractive these women were to that class. And the ones that were there the most were the ones that were rated higher in level of attraction. And basically what that means is, is people are attracted to that which they are familiar. And even if they don't consciously realize that they saw that one of like one of those women in the classroom, they did notice subconsciously because after seeing somebody many times, they became more attracted to that person. Well, the same thing works with branding. The same thing, th- same thing works with like what car you drive. If your parents drove a certain car, you're more attracted to that type of car because you're more familiar with it. So attractiveness and familiarity go hand in hand. And when you are trying to market an idea, and I have to do this a lot in a corporate world, you know, you have lots of chefs in the kitchen. Every business has their own safety team. I don't try to force anything on anybody. It's all about persuasion. It's all about trying to encourage and support. And so in order to market my ideas, I use those principles. And then I also like to incorporate a visual because then it takes fewer impressions to become familiar. Well, I'm almost disappointed to say we're down to the last one, number five. (laughs) All right. Number five is don't trust the numbers, especially not zero. It's an interesting thing. There are so many barriers to communication and communication is a key part of learning. And that's all you need to do as a safety person. You need to learn because you can't fix the problems you don't know about. And your goal is to keep people safe, right? It's to send people home safely at the end of the day. If that is truly your goal, you have to find out about the problems and you have to eliminate those problems so people don't get hurt by them. And so if you are trying to learn, you have to have communication because you can't be, you're not omnipotent. You can't be at all places at all times. So you have to build a relationship and you have to build that communication channel with your employees so that they know how and feel comfortable communicating any issues to you so that you can fix them. So there's two parts to that. 
So one, you have to build the communication pipeline. And then two, you have to eliminate the barriers to communication. And some of them can't be uh, eliminated, right? So somebody who's really experienced might make a bonehead mistake, get hurt. They may not want to report it because they're embarrassed. Just the social pressure, that's very difficult to overcome. And that's everywhere, no matter what. So you already have barriers in place like social pressure and embarrassment. But another barrier, probably the greatest barrier, and that's something that we can control, we can fix, is fear. So if an employee is afraid to talk to you, then you need to work to fix that. Because where there is fear, there is incorrect figures. That's a Deming quote. Yeah, and it's very true. It's so true. If people are afraid to tell you, same thing with children, You know, getting back to the parenting side of things. If your child has a problem and they're afraid to tell you, now you can't help them with the problem and it could just get worse. Yeah, and you leave them to deal with it all by themselves. That's the most unfair thing you can do. Exactly. Okay, so five principles for parenting and occupational safety management. Can folks find this book if they find you on LinkedIn? Yeah. Well, the best place to find it is on Amazon. I have some posts on LinkedIn, but sometimes I think on LinkedIn, you make a post and it's there for a while and then it kind of fades away into obscurity over time. The best thing is just to search. You can search up my name, Nate Brayman on Amazon and you should be able to find it that way. Okay. Well, we'll have your name and we'll have the title of the book in the show notes. You talked about this project you did that got you in front of Warren Buffett. You have some new projects in the works you want to tell us about real quick before we close out? Yeah. So the well, my main project, my main area of focus is isitrecordable.com. One of the things that that I experienced as a corporate safety manager for a very large company is that especially with the businesses that did not have a designated safety person and even with the ones who did that I got asked the question hey, this person was hurt. This is what happened. Is it recordable? And I got so used to answering these questions, I became intimately familiar with the OSHA record keeping guidelines and decided, hey, you know what might actually be helpful? Because I know if in my organization, you know, where I work, that I'm sure there's similar issues in other businesses and especially in smaller businesses where they don't really know what's recordable and what's not recordable. So I started isitrecordable.com and it's a free service. It's just me. I'm the only one with access to the site. So there's a chat box on the site where you can send me messages if you have any questions. There's also a form where you can you can submit the form and then I will get back to you. Usually I get back to people within 15 minutes. I'm very quick in my re- replies. But what what I strive to do is provide a free service to my safety, my peers, so that They don't have to waste time trying to read the OSHA record-keeping guidelines. I know as fascinating and as interesting as those are, most people don't like to read through and try to understand those things. Oh, yeah. It's the way I want to end my day every day. Riveting. I I look look forward to say, I can't wait till the end of the day when I can read those things. I know. Like, I have a Stephen King book here I could read about, you know, a crazy story or the OSHA record-keeping guidelines. It's always a struggle to, to decide. Exactly. Exactly. Unless you're suffering from insomnia and you need to go to sleep, you know. So, so is it recordable.com? So it's just www.isitrecordable.com and that website's up and running right now? Yes, sir. It is. And I'm looking to expand on that. And I have a bunch of ideas in mind. So anything that I do, I'm doing some secret squirrel stuff I don't want to reveal quite yet. Some things that they're still safety related, but not only safety related. You can follow the hashtag, hashtag Redbeard on LinkedIn. You can also follow me on LinkedIn and any announcements will be posted on my profile on LinkedIn. I tend to spend most of my time and focus on LinkedIn. Okay. Well, that's great. Nate, this has been 
very informative. It's been very interesting. I think it's been very enlightening and hopefully it's been entertaining at the same time. Again, I want to thank you for coming on the show. As always, we want to thank everyone for listening. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Anderson Hauser's Oil and Gas HSE podcast. This is a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network, and we thank Anderson Hauser for sponsoring us. Anderson Hauser is your reliable U.S.-based partner for measurement instrumentation services and solutions. We are your people for process automation. And check out our other OGGN podcasts, and you can go to the OGGN website. You can just simply Google OGGN podcasts and it'll pop up. Find out more about Anderson Hauser by going to cx.endress.com forward slash HSE dash podcast, where you can register for our monthly podcast giveaway. This also helps let them know you're listening to and enjoying the podcast. And if you didn't get that address, we'll put it in the show notes along also with where you can follow us on our LinkedIn address at Anderson Hauser Group and on Twitter at Endress underscore US. Folks, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell your friends about us. See you next time. This is Savannah, and here are the events on deck for September 2020. There's the FPSO World Congress 2020, and that's on September 1st to the 4th, and also the 8th, and it's all online. The next one is Building the Future Industrial Summit on September the 16th, and that's also online. There's also the 4th Annual Blockchain and Oil and Gas Conference 2020, and that's on September the 16th to the 18th. Then there's the Engenius Symposium and Exhibition for Upstream Innovation 2020, and that's September the 22nd to the 24th. And there's also Effective Leadership Through Change and Uncertainty featuring Condoleezza Rice, and that's on September the 24th. There's also NAEP Summer 2020 from August 11th to September the 14th, And lastly, there's BP Week 2020, September 14th to 16th. That's all for September. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.